You are listening to Community Voices on NPR Illinois. Today we are listening to the UIS Lunch and Learn series, which features a presentation by historian Curtis Mann about Lake Springfield and a presentation by Mark McDonald about Illinois stories. Here's Bill Furry, director of the Illinois State Historical Society. Our first presenter is no stranger to the Lunch and Learn series. Historian and researcher Curtis Mann will speak on the history of Lake Springfield. Curtis recently retired, although that's a loaded word, as manager of the Sam Valley Collection to the Lincoln Public Library, which he called his home for over 30 years. Established in 1970, the Sangamon Valley Collection hosts over 70,000 digital images and over 100,000 print images, providing in-depth resources for the study of Springfield, Sangamon County, and the 11 adjacent counties. Curtis's expertise is a researcher, archivist, and author of a dozen publications, plus many other talents, mightily contributed to the development of the Sangamon Valley Collection. Please join me in welcoming Curtis Mann back to the Lunch and Learn series. The history of Lake Springfield, as Bill's talked about, it's just fascinating to me. And from its construction to the present day, I've enjoyed learning more about it. The Sangamon Valley Collection, where I worked, has got a great deal of information about the lake. City Water, Light, and Power has a lot of its records there because it is a city institution that gave us um, a lot of their old materials. Um, in 2020, my friend Robert Mazram and I had decided that we would take that information and write a pictorial history of the lake which was published in 2021. And so this program is based primarily on that book. Now, basically, this is all about water. Every community needs a reliable water supply. Springfield's water supply started out with just these little pumps that were located on the corners of the public square in downtown Springfield, where the old state capital is today. You know, so the most of the houses and everything either had cisterns or wells for their water supply. But as the city began to grow, they decided they needed to have a, a better public water supply. And so there was an effort made in the 1850s to uh, dig an artesian well, and all they came up with was coal, which was a good, good discovery for the city, as they know, because coal became a big industry later on. But um, in an effort to provide a viable water supply, a private water company was started. This company was going to build a pumping station at uh, the Sangman River north of town and then pipe the water in. But that company was not viable. And so in order to keep the project going, the city of Springfield took ownership of that company. And this is what you would consider to be probably the founding of CWLP as we know it. And what they did was where Lanfear High School is today, they built this reservoir. So this would have been where the water that was pumped in from the Sangamon River would have been located. And what happened was in order to build a reservoir, they actually um, took a lot of the earth from the surrounding area. And the result was a lagoon that would have been on the north side of the, the reservoir. And that's how we got Reservoir Park. It became kind of like our first city park, but it also had you know recreation in mind. And that's just something to think about when the city officials are looking at the history of what's going to happen with the development of Lake Springfield. So in 1925, there was a city plan put together, and by this time, the, the river station was pumping water out of the river, but they also had developed wells in that area as well because of the demand and when the river got down. Using Sangamon River as a water supply wasn't that great. 
Um, I know there's instances back in the day when at Riverton there used to be a distillery and they had a cattle pens where um, they would feed that distilled mash to the cows to fatten them up to sell off. And of course, cows produce manure. And so how do you get rid of manure? You push it into the river. And of course, it comes downriver to our water station and gets pumped into the city. So there was a lot of irate patrons of the city that were paid residents that didn't care for the, that refuse in their, their water supply. So trying to come up with a new water supply was part of the city plan. This was put together by a guy named Myron West. And Mr. West actually had developed a plan similar for Decatur, Illinois. And in 1923, they built a lake on the Sangamon River. So there was a precedent for it. And as part of his plan for a municipal lake, he just put out an idea that feature, you know, for Springfield to grow, they were going to need a new water source, a reliable municipal lake. And so you can see it here on the, the right, there's a map that shows a proposed lake on the Sangamon River. And that's where the municipal lake was supposed to go originally. But that plan changed and an alternate source was picked up at the Lick Creek and Sugar Creek water basins. And so the plan was to put a dam across Sugar Creek and then flood the, of the floodplains of those two creeks. And so um, the lake itself was designed to be about 4,000 acres with about 3,500 acres of shoreline. And so what happened was the city began starting to purchase land in 1931. The city plan didn't get put into place immediately, but as far as the city plan, the municipal lake was about one of the only things that in that plan that they actually followed through with. And there was about 110 parcels of private land, mostly farmland that had to be purchased by the city so in the fall of 1931, tree cutting crews and other crews were put together to start removing trees and, and fence lines and, and other debris brush. Balding Dam, or the dam itself, was built in 1933, and that was an earthen dam with a concrete gate, and so horse-drawn wagons would have hauled the earth into it. This was named after Willis Spaulding, Willis J. Spaulding. He was our superintendent of the city public waterworks. And then in 1911, he became the first commissioner of public property with the 1911 change of government to a commission form of government. Of course, with you know the shoreline, you want to prevent erosion control. You have to have erosion control to go on. And so rip wrapping was a big part of that erosion control effort. And these crews of men would have been hired to basically lay tons of limestone around what is, amounts to about 57 miles of shoreline. And so in order to get that particular material there, they would have used this crane and barge to transport the limestone to the various sections of the shoreline. This is Spalding Dam in 1935, May of 1935, the water level finally reached what they call full pool and would have made it such that it, the water could be now controlled. There were five gates that would have uh, controlled that water. The lake actually was dedicated in a ceremony, the three-day ceremony in July of 1935. As I mentioned before, this whole idea that we have this lake served many purposes, not just for providing water, but for recreation and for power. And so one 
one particular use of it was to help operate, cool the city water and light power electric station. This is the first one that was built. It was called the Lakeside Plant, and it would have been, basically it's not in use today, but the building is still there. But Springfield had been generating power all the way back when we still had the Sanguine River plant as well. And then in the 1960s and 70s, three other plants were, were built to supplement power generation. And these were called the Dahlman stations. As far as the water purification goes, the man on the, the left is kind of the father of, of water purification for our, our city. His name was Charles Spaulding and he patented a water purification system and, and installed it in Springfield. He was the brother of Willis Spalding. Another purpose of this lake as well was for the residential occupation, and not just of houses, but for places for clubs, camps, other public facilities, and so parks. And so the city actually as a part of what was West's plan, instead of selling the lots, it actually just leased the lots. And so this advertisement was talking about how you could have a vacation home on Lake Springfield for the whole year instead of just having a vacation home somewhere else. And so the idea was that there would have been a, you know, a lot of weekend cottages and cabins built initially for people to get away on the weekend. A lot of them um, were later torn down and, and more you know, impressive houses were built for year-round occupation. But when the city actually started to uh, develop subdivisions around it, it did have specifications that if you were going to build in a certain area, you had to reach a dollar limit in order to build on there. So back in those days, you know, you had, a, you had to put a $3,000 house here or maybe a $10,000 house there. So it was kind of controlled in the sense of, what kind of houses were going to be allowed anywhere, but there could be places where people could afford to put in, you know, just a little cottage. This is the Lake Springfield Beach, and um, it was developed in 1934 with the, the Stone Beach House put into it, and it had the, the, the ability to host about 1,500 bathers at a time. They put in a seawall or breakwater, and then later were able to chlorinate the water. And so this was a very popular site for you know, many decades. There was um, issues in 1998 with leptospirosis when members or participants in the uh, Ironman triathlon uh, got sick as well as some other recreational lake users. And so it had been shut down. And then for many years after that, the beach would be shut down because they were taking measurements for the E. coli bacteria that was in the water. And so they were determined to uh, make sure that, that those levels stayed down. In July of 2007, there was a drowning there. A teenager drowned. And that kind of caused the, the beach to be shut down. And it hasn't been reopened since. Beaches were segregated early on in 1935-36. There was a separate beach for African Americans that was built called Bridgeview Beach, and it was located over on the west side of, of Lake Springfield. Segregation ended in 1952, and the beach itself was closed in 1972 just because of, of losing money. I think what I read in one article was that neither one of the beaches actually ever was profitable. They always operated at a loss. 
Lincoln Memorial Garden was started in 1936, the 63 acre site that you know, being a natural area that would be developed in memory, a living memory of Lincoln. The people at the bottom are kind of the, the founders of it. The gentleman in the middle is renowned landscape architect, Jens Jensen, and standing next to him on the left is Harriet Knudsen, and she was kind of like the spearheaded the effort to create the garden, and the gentleman is her husband, Dr. T.J. Newson, on the right. Uh, 1960s, the Springfield Park District started building his little zoo near Center Park in, in, on the lake, and then later it was, in 1970, it opened as Henson Robinson Zoo. And I just found this interesting, this habitat at the bottom was called Monkey Island. It was located in, in the middle of a lagoon inside the park. 1948, we got our golf course, Lincoln Greens, was developed through the efforts of the JCs and the Alice Chalmers Company. The Muni Opera came along um, in the 1950s, I believe, and that, of course, provides a stage and kind of a remote area, keep a natural environment, and several productions are performed there every year. Probably the most interesting to me about the lake is this whole culture about clubs. I mean, there was, between 1935 and 65, there were about nearly two dozen clubs, private clubs that were established along the lake. And a lot of this was all about access to fishing, to boating and skiing, you know, because these places didn't have, you know, a lot of people didn't have access to the lake, they didn't live on the lake, so these clubs provided that access. Some of the clubs were fraternal in, in nature and theme, like the Masonic group or the Knights of Columbus, but then you also had occupational themed clubs like the Postal Club or the Press Club, other groups like the American AMVETS. American AMVETS would have been another group or the firefighters and so there's all kinds of different groups that were putting in clubs. This was something that I found very interesting in, in putting this book together because the building on the right I'd been in before because it's now used by the CWLP for lake management and a training center. But in 1942, the Illinois National Guard constructed a barracks near Spalding Dam to provide protection to the city to provide protection for the water and power supply. And then after the war, that was turned over as a Naval Reserve Center. And so there was training for Naval Reservists there until about 1979 when budgetary cuts caused the place to be closed. And so CWP took over control of it at that time and still uses it as well. In 1952, fall of 52, the, the lake experienced a very severe drought and this thing carried on for another three years into 1955, early 1955. So it got pretty bad and water had to be pumped in from the South Fork branch of the Sangamon River in order to get the, get the water levels back up. Here's another telltale sign of, of drought. Uh, you build a dock and then you have to walk another 100 feet or 200 feet to get to your boat. And of course, you know, this drought, I believe, was really the, the start of talk for building, you know, Lake 2, Hunter Lake. It goes all the, way, all the way back into that time and the city started purchasing land. But it really wasn't until 1989 that they, they applied for the permit 
which then, uh, with the Corps of Engineers, which then carried on for 30 years. Just at the end of the lake, on the west end, there was a natural condition. There, the land was kept for natural conditions along the wildlife preserves. And so, as you've heard, I just find this a fascinating part of Springfield with its unique history, and I appreciate your attention. Thank you. Keep listening to hear more from the UIS Lunch and Learn series on Community Voices. This is Community Voices on NPR Illinois. Today we are listening to the UIS Lunch and Learn series. We just heard from Curtis Mann about the history of Lake Springfield, and now we listen to Mark McDonald as he shares his experience in broadcast television sharing Illinois stories. Here's Bill Furry, director of the Illinois State Historical Society. Our next presenter will speak to his first-hand experiences in storytelling as a two-decade host of Illinois Stories. Mark McDonald is the award-winning media writer and producer who hosted the Emmy Award-winning series since its first episode in 2006. Each half-hour episode of Illinois Stories focused on a single story, telling viewers more about a topic unique to central Illinois. More than 1,200 episodes were produced and were run on network knowledge public television stations, and they aired all over. Gosh, Quincy, Jacksonville, Springfield. Um, all the way up to Peoria. Topics range from the Decatur Celebration and the Farm Progress Show to the storied Ferris wheels of Jacksonville, from Lincoln's footsteps in Springfield to the historic barns of the Macomb area, from the rich river heritage of Quincy and Hannibal to the bounty of the richest farmland on earth. Please join me in welcoming Mark McDonald to the Lunch and Learn program. Thank you, Bill. It's not polite to correct your introducer, but um, we started in 2003. As a matter of fact, that's how we can be 20 years old, yeah. I wish we had made 20. We made it to 19. As many of you may know, last, last year this show was canceled, and I was terminated, and I really, really wanted to get to 2023 so we could do a 20th year anniversary. Didn't happen, but we were able to leave kind of a, um, a legacy and a a good archive of programs that, that I hope will, will last in some people's memories and, and introduce other people to Central Illinois, Northeast Missouri, Southeast Iowa, and uh, even uh, we had viewers in Indiana as well because we were on satellite. It was, a, it was the greatest privilege of my life was to be given this project. Back in 2003, many of you may know Jerry Grabell who ran the station for all those years. God love him, he's retired now, and he doesn't have to worry about raising money anymore. Um, but he, he uh, came to me back in 2003, and board of directors had determined, okay, what's going to set us aside from other PBS stations? It's going to have to be local programming. And they were committed to it. The only trouble is nobody at the station knew how to do it. For the first year or so, they started sending a camera and... Uh, you know, out to seminars and speeches and presentations, and they put it on the air, kind of edited and put it on the air, and nobody wanted to watch that stuff. Um, you know, it's just a talking head. So I was doing volunteer work for the station at the time. I had a program called Lawmakers with Mark McDonald. I was doing it gratis. I enjoyed the work. I enjoyed being in the Capitol and interviewing 
our representatives and senators, so that's, that's why I was doing it. So I kept this relationship going with, with the station, and Jerry also knew that I had some television experience, and he said, uh, you know, we, we, we're going to start a program called Illinois Stories. And I said, that's a good name. He said, are, are you interested? I said, well, let me think about that. And so I put together some interviews, and I, I said, Jerry, I've got a story idea for you. He goes, hey, what is it? And I told him. He goes, okay, I'll buy that. So I would go out and I'd do the story and I'd sell it to him for $250, which was pretty good back then. Plus, I didn't have much time in it. His people were doing the editing. All I had to do was go do the interview. I said, well, this is pretty cool. So I'd call Jerry and say, I've got a story idea for you. He goes, what is it? I'd tell him. He goes, I'll buy that. So I'd do it again. Well, Jerry's always been pretty smart and pretty frugal. So this 250 a pop wasn't settling too well with him. He decided he was going to put me on staff and save a lot of money. Well, that's what he did. He said, I want a story a week. I said, okay. And I go out and get a story. And all this time, you know, we're sort of building. What, what are we going to do? What, we got to do something different. So I sell him the story, and that went on for a couple of months. He says, I want, I want two stories a week. And I said, okay. So we deliver two stories a week. Then about after the first year, Jerry says, I want three stories a week. And I said, Jerry, you're going to kill me. And so we started doing three. This is how we get to 1,240 stories. So we start doing three stories a week, and uh, they add up pretty quick that way. And he, he, he did give me a nice raise, made it worth my while. And all this time what we're doing is we're, when we first started, I, I have to tell you, this is, this is sweet too. The photographer, my crew, I had a crew in Quincy, and I had a crew in Springfield. Springfield crew handled all the stories on the eastern side of the Illinois River, and my crew in Quincy handled the western stories. I had the same crew for 19 years. The same guy in Quincy and the same crew in Springfield for all 19 years. So it was a tremendous gift. They, they knew what I was going to do before I was going to do it. I mean, that's how close we, we worked together. And so there was never any lack of coordination. There was never any question about, you know, where we're going to position ourselves, how we're going to do the interview. It was just, it all flowed just beautifully. So, so we're doing three stories a week. And all this time, what we're doing, we, we started building a house without a plan, lay the foundation, and then you kind of say, well, what are our dimensions? What are we going to support it with? Well, we finally did, after about three years, we finally got to where we were making programs of some quality that made sense and that people wanted to watch. And then, then I think we, we, were, we were on the way. We really started to, to click. But it, these, these, the, the issues that what Bill, Bill mentioned earlier, he never saw me work with a note. You can't uh, engage an interviewer with, with, with notes. You, you, you've got to have a conversation. So what I always tried to do was engage my interview just you're talking to me now, ignore that camera, just talk to me. And I think our programs looked like we were just having a time, I think. Um, and that, that was, that was the, the whole idea, was to make, it, make you, the audience, to be part of a meeting, or be part of an, an engagement, be part of a, uh, a session of some kind. Um, and then we also wanted to throw in, well, we need activity, we need visuals. So we would try to take tours, and we would try to, uh, show us how you make that. You know, um, how, did you, how did you do that? Um, I, I was telling, this lady in the front here is a fine organist. I was telling her earlier about a story, one of my favorite stories, which, which brings all this sort of together. 
Um, there was an older gentleman who lived in Rushville. He had a meatpacking plant. Bill Bartlow made some money in his life. Um, I think his brand was called Corn Fed Hot Dogs, or Corn Top, Corn Top Hot Dogs. You may have seen that brand through the years. They were packed in Rushville. Bill made quite a bit of money and he loved music. He could play a little organ. When he found out the Orpheum Theater in Quincy was closing and they were gonna trash their organ, he stepped in. He said, that can't happen. He said, you can tear down the theater, but you can't, <laughs> that organ's gotta stay in Illinois. So he bought it. Took him a couple of semi-loads to get the organ back to his home. He had a normal two-story house. So where's he gonna put this thing? He builds an immense addition onto his house because he's got hundreds of pipes to fit in there. He's got snare drums and he's got bells and whistles and everything you can think of. You know all the, all the sound effects those, those organs make. Well, they're all the real deal. They're, those are not synthetic. Those are all the real deal. When you hear a drum, it's a drum pounding. When you hear a whistle, it's a whistle blowing. When you hear a cymbal, it's a cymbal clanging. So he builds this immense addition onto the house. And so we take a tour back there and we ask Bill to man the keys. And we're down in his addition. And I say, okay, I'm calling for, I, okay, I want, I want the pipe. I'm, okay, I want the horn. I, I, I want the cymbal. And he bang, bang, bang. And uh, so I thought to myself, nobody's ever had this experience before. This is just like being there. This is perfect. That's what we were really shooting for the whole time. And then, to, to top it all off, I had Mark Gifford go over, over with me and play the darn thing. And nobody can play a theater organ quite like Mark Gifford can. So it was a terrific story. Had all the elements. But you have to have an interesting person doing an interesting thing. And you have to have the visuals and the sound. All of that goes together. People often ask me, what was your, what's your favorite story? And that's really hard. That's like, it's like picking your kids, you know, who's your favorite kid? Um, this morning, I, I went through the archive, the 1,240 stories. I shouldn't have done that because I got real emotional. <laughs> and I'm still a little addled because, because I had this experience this morning. I hadn't looked at them all for a year. And, um, but but I, I just wanted to refresh my memory on some of them. And of course, Bill Bartwell came to mind. Um, but, but, the, but the Sullivan family who lives, every time I tell this story, somebody says, oh yeah, they're my second cousin. Or, oh yeah, I'm, I'm married to a Sullivan. You know, um, the Sullivans who live between Petersburg and Athens. Bill and Robin Sullivan, does that ring a bell with anybody? Yeah, Bill, okay, are, are you kin? <laughs> anyway, they're a very interesting family. I got onto them because, Fox Sports asked me to do an interview in, in uh, Jacksonville. There was a football player over there named Kevin Sullivan. And this young man was played football. He was a, 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 an honor student. Um, he, ran a he ran his own businesses on the side. And they just thought he was an excellent uh, subject for, for an interview. So I went over to after football practice one day. And he had cleaned up and we got to talking. And he told me about his family, and I said, Kevin, I, I want to meet your family. I want to make an Illinois story out of your family, because all his, his brothers and sisters were just like him. And his parents were like that, very hardworking, very industrious, com just constantly um, uh, uh, achieving things. Um, he says, well, that'd be good. You could come. And I said, well, what, what, what would be a good time? He goes, oh, any day. 
before 5 a.m. <laughs> it was about this time of year, too. So, I mean, it's dark for eight hours, you know, it's only light for eight hours a day. So we got there at five o'clock in the morning. He was feeding his bison when we got there, which is great TV too. Um, but we got finished feeding the bison. We went in the house and his parents are both teachers. They, they don't make a lot of money, but they, in the summer, his dad built this immense lodge style home for the family. I mean, it was huge. It looked like if, if you went to Montana, and, uh, and, and stayed in one of those majestic inns. That's what it looked like. And so I interviewed the rest of the family. The, the, the girls each had their own business. One of them raised dogs, and the other one, did, I can't remember, did something else. The younger boy, um, in, in the morning, he delivered dog food to people. I, I, I don't know why they do it at 5 in the morning, but I guess if you're busy, you're busy. Anyway, I, I, just, I just loved that story. He took me out where he, he raises pheasants. Um, he and his little brother, um, sell deer urine to hunters. They package up deer urine and sell it to hunters. I said, how, how do you get it? He says, oh, that's proprietary. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and sometimes I just hope that, um, that, that the story that I'm doing is an inspirational because I, I, uh, I get inspired by some of the people that I interview. And the one that came to mind this, this morning when I was going through them, was a fellow named Michael Blankenship, who lives in Chatham. He's blind, and he makes the most beautiful wood vases and bowls, et cetera, that you have ever seen in your life. And I got, I was told about Michael, and I finally, you know, got a day where I wasn't doing anything, and I was able to run him down. And he says, sure, come on by. So I, my cameraman and I went over there, and he was working in the works in the garage where his equipment is, and he showed me some of his work, and I, it astounded me that a that a, a blind person could do this. He wasn't always blind; he became blind with a, a strange viral disease about 20 years ago, um, and he had never turned wood before. He didn't do that until he was blind. It, for those of you who don't know what turning wood is, you you take a block of wood, your choice and you put it on a lathe, and the lathe spins around. You, you, know, you regulate how fast you want the lathe. And while it's spinning, you take a chisel, and you put it up against the wood, and it eats away the wood in, a very, in whatever form that you want it to. So most of the time, they're round things. They're vases or bowls, those kinds of things. Um, but you can, you can do a remarkable variety of things with, with a lathe like that. And I said, Michael, this doesn't make sense. I don't know how you, how did you, how did you learn to do this? He goes, from a video. <laughs> and I said, Michael, how, did, how? He says, well, my wife got the video and she watched it and explained it to me. So we were watching him work and he works, most wood turners don't do this. He works with bandages on his hands because he can't see what he's doing. He has to put his hands on the wood. And of course, he'd burn his hands if he didn't have bandages on. So that's how he does it. He feels what he's doing through bandages. Well, I, if you all would like to check this out, go online to Michael Blankenship, and you'll see samples of his work. I wanted to bring you up to date on what we're doing now. Um, because I know you'll, you'll probably have some questions, and I assume that we'll, we'll get to some of those. 
Um, Randy Phillips, my photographer from Quincy, and I are um, engaged in producing more stories. Once the, a, a outfit called Muddy River News found out that we were not going to be doing Illinois stories anymore, they contacted us and said, why don't you do stories for us? And so we started a year ago. We've done 12 stories for them. And what they are, they're exactly like Illinois stories, except we can't call them that because, you know, the station owns the name. But we're calling them Muddy River Gems because Quincy's the gem city. And uh, we're, we're producing those. So if you would like to see some of our work, all you have to do is go online, type in Muddy River uh, News, and uh, then click on videos, and, uh, and some of those stories will come up. And that's what I'm up to now. Um, and I, uh, I, I hope that you all um, miss Illinois stories a little bit anyway. And, uh, and we'll, we'll catch up with me on what we're doing now. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the UIS Lunch and Learn series on Community Voices. 